This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. Yeah, it's called conversations with Jeff, not screaming matches. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism. But look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. When you should be out there winning people for Jesus, right? Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though, and so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth, and then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. I'm really excited about uh, today's guest that we've got on, but first, uh, I want to thank you guys all for tuning in, and then also for everybody that uh, tuned in to our first ever online conference we had going on this last weekend, the Destroy Social Justice Conference. Uh, had a great time. Um, I practically lost my voice since I was on pretty much the entire time, introing everybody and talking, and it, you know, I ended up interviewing Michael Massey, interviewing Trevor Loudon, being on the panel, giving my own talk. My voice is still recovering, but I'm really excited about today, um, as well as a reminder that uh, we've got our book, Social Injustice, uh, that is actually beginning to be shipped out today. Uh, if you guys would like to go ahead and order your copy, uh, we've got you can head on over to socialinjusticebook.com. We've got authors like uh, Brandon Howes, Andy Woods, Ken Peters, Mike Spaulding, Tom Littleton, all the GK guys. We've got Ken Peters t- tackling the pro-life issue. We've got a great lineup of authors in that book, as well as Michael Massey writing the foreword. And then over the weekend, we did just announce um, our second book that we're going to be publishing, which is Five Steps to Kill a Nation, which is going to be written by Pastor Sam Jones. Um, and uh, we're really excited about that book that will probably be out this summer. Um, but you guys can go ahead and start pre-ordering that today as well at gatekeepersonline.com slash store. So you can get that and Social Injustice, and we can kind of go from there. Uh, really excited about today's conversation. We're going to be dealing with an interesting topic that a lot of Christian podcasts don't really talk about. Uh, but uh, I'm bringing on uh, Carl Teichrib onto the show. This is the first time we've been trying to connect for a while, uh, but really excited to have you on and glad we, glad we could do this. 
I'm looking forward to this. It's you're right. We we have tried to connect off and on for quite some time. It's never worked out, but this is good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, now the interesting thing about you because I've been fo- I've been following you for a while, um, and I know you recently came out with your book. Uh, uh, it was it Game of God Game of Gods. Is that correct? If I'm getting yep, the name right, Game of Gods. It's on it's on my list of yep. books to read for for 2020, and so I'm really excited <laughs> to read it. But uh, you know. I, I feel like a lot of the people around me have been talking about that book quite often. If you could give a quick summary for people just that, you know, like, because I feel like with the topic that you're talking about, it's very interesting, but it's very relevant to what's going on today. Oh, wow. Well, it's a thick book. It's a big book. It's um, what it is, Jeff, is it's a survey, uh, literally a survey of how our worldview has shifted and changed. And along this survey path that I'm taking you on, uh, we explore the shift from uh, the era of Christendom to modernity, the shift that took place during modernity into postmodernism, the tension points. And then I make the argument, I make the case that we are entering another phase. Yes, we still have modernity, the the influence of it. And yes, oh, no doubt, we still are living in an era of postmodernism. But I make the argument that we're entering a different era, and that is the age of reenchantment. This looking for, desiring for a sense of wonder, purpose, and meaning, and finding it specifically within creation within nature. It basically boils down to experiencing a Romans 1 world. And so it is a an historical overview of how we moved from the Judeo-Christian framework, from the Judeo-Christian worldview, into what we could really call, realistically call a pagan worldview. Uh, the book is broken down into a number of sections. Uh, section 4 has four chapters. Each of them are quite extensive. uh, taking a look at everything from global governance because there is an alternative salvation message through global governance. I take you into the history of world order. Uh, One of the other chapters goes goes into interfaithism and and demonstrates how that is really a form of spiritual politics. Uh, And along the way, in every one of these chapters, I take you to events. I take you to events that I have participated in, that I have gone to observe, to witness, um, to be a fly on the wall. Everything from United Nations events, global governance events, world federalist meetings, to interfaith conferences, the Parliament of World Religions, uh, transhumanist events, the Global Future 2045 Congress that took place in New York City, and then to places like Burning Man. Because there's a cultural aspect to this that can't be ignored, yeah, and that's that's an element that nobody in the Christian world really is talking about, at least not to any any great degree. And to break all that down, yes, it's a big book. Uh, I don't tell you how to think in the book; that surprises some people. I, I hold uh, uh, I hold a Christian evangelical perspective that comes out in the book; it's very clear. But at the same time, I don't tell you how to think. Uh, I put the evidence before you and allow the the timeline of history to to show itself and allow you to work it through, um, you know, for yourself that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, and, and what's what's interesting too, uh, just like that kind of strategy of the way you're you're explaining how you portrayed it in the book is like I feel like a lot of times as believers, what we do oftentimes is we just go tell everybody this is what to think. 
And I feel like at a certain point, there becomes this wall that comes up because it's like at a certain point, they have to rationalize it and figure it out on their own. So if we can ask the pointed questions, present the facts and that sort of thing, it kind of brings them on this journey to realize, okay, no, this is actually truth and it actually makes sense. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, we had a, uh, a really interesting experience last spring. My wife and I were in a, a used bookstore. This is in the United States. I'm from Canada, by the way. We were in, in, in a used bookstore in a small city in the U.S. And my wife overheard this young man talking about uh, about looking for a book on shamanism. And so she stalked him and came alongside and went through the bookshelves, helping him find this book. And she said to him, she says, I, 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 you know, I overheard you talking about this book. Let me help you find it. And then partway through, she goes, why are you interested? And it ended up forming a, a conversation, a good conversation. I walked into it a few minutes later. We met two days later for, for breakfast. It went, had a two-hour-long talk uh, describing the Judeo-Christian worldview, the approach that, that the God we serve is different and distinct, unique from creation versus what the world is embracing. And he was interested in psychology and particularly Jungian psychology. He was interested in shamanism. He was, he was ex- exploring all kinds of things, uh, exploring the, the questions of environmentalism, paganism. The list just went on. So I gave him a copy of my book and the guy got back to us. In fact, he got back to us only about two weeks ago and he's like, he thanked us. He, he literally thanked us for not telling him what to think or how to think, but laying the evidence out in such a way that it made him, it forced him to wrestle through it. It forced him to wrestle wrestle through it and then to really weigh what is truly fundamentally important. So right now he is personally wrestling through, do I now believe the claims of Jesus Christ? What do I do with this information? Yeah. And, And it's good. That's what it's about. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, and like you know, my my uncle and a lot of people uh, know this about like me as well is that you know he owns a he's he's a believer, but he owns like a, a, a like a freak show nightclub in like North Hollywood, California, right? And, and you know, okay. and there it's like kind of the underground of like Burbank, North Hollywood, old Hollywood, that sort of thing. And he's getting people coming in all the time with a lot of these kind of like dark backgrounds. And you know, whether sometimes they're Scientologists, sometimes they're you know f- flat out witches, sometimes they're into all these different things. And they come in and then they find out that he's a believer, but he's in this kind of like underbelly of Hollywood. And and they're just like shocked that somebody who actually understands that's like preaching Jesus and literally praying at the drop of a hat if some guy comes in. And it's like to them, it's it's shocking and it makes them feel like, okay, I can actually approach this guy and talk to him as opposed to the suits and ties in, you know, a lot of conservative churches where they feel uncomfortable and unapproachable to a certain degree. So even just from that perspective, it's like, like with you, you're going to all these events and it's like, you're right there with the very people that we're supposed to be reaching and not just saying, Hey, no, come over to church first and then we'll talk. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to wrestle through what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. It's one of the, 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 points I bring through in my book. Uh, an ambassador for Christ recognizes that you are in their setting. You're in their world. And now how do we express Jesus Christ honestly in love and in truth and in grace? How do we do it when we've entered their world? The Apostle Paul gives us a great example in Acts 17 when he goes to Athens, to Mars Hill. Uh, you know the story. He goes uh, to, to basically the trendsetters of the day. He is he's speaking in the marketplace. He, he goes uh, to the Areopagus. He's taken to the Areopagus. 
and he is questioned on his beliefs, and he uses their spiritual set, setting. He uses their spiritual situation because he's taking the time to unpack their worldview. He's taking the time to unpack where they're at spiritually, and he's entered their realm. And so he's able to say, hey, look, I even found a, an inscription to the God or to a God that says to the unknown God. And this God I want to proclaim to you. So he leveraged he leveraged their cultural, spiritual setting, and he entered into their realm to do it, and then brings the gospel forward at that point. We tried something like that, and we've been trying something like this at Burning Man. Uh, we've gone to Burning Man now three years. We set up a tent. We have a, a, a sign outside of our tent called Camp of the Unknown God, and it is literally to see, can we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can we be an ambassador for Jesus Christ in what many would be considered to, to be an extremely pagan uh, uh, setting? which is really nothing more than a reflection of the culture all around us right now. If we're honest about it, that's really what it is. Right. Yeah. Now, now, what what got you started with going to a lot of these events? Because this is not something that you hear about from a lot of Christians and a lot of believers. And, you know, even, <laughs> even when you think about it, like missionaries, they're going to like Africa or South America or whatever it is, and you're going to Burning Man, which out here I – li- I, live, <laughs> I live out here in California – I have a lot of friends. They they go to Burning Man. Never been. It's never been an interest for me or anything along those lines. But you're like, no, they need to be reached. So you go there. So what what was the thing where you're like, I need to go to these events? Oh wow. Uh, you know, here, here's the thing, Jeff. I've been working on uh, on trying to understand world transformation since the early 1990s. I began writing articles in the mid 1990s. Uh, by 1997, I had a Christian author contact me, say, "Hey, your material is important. Your your perspective is important. I want to hire you to help write one of my books uh, and do the research," which I did. Um, it was it was great. It was a fantastic experience. Okay, this is like the na- late 1990s. By 1997, I, I realized that that I had to take my research one step further. Yes, I'm reading reports. I'm reading. I'm reading materials. I, I've, I've went, I already stepped beyond just reading articles about world issues. And now I, I, you know, I was already to the point of contacting agencies and, and organizations, getting their annual reports, getting their, their memos, doing whatever I needed to do to gather information as I was wrestling through what I was seeing around me. And, and really the next step was to, to start attending, to start going to where change was taking shape. So the very first event I attended was back in, in the spring of 1997, and that was in Vancouver, British Columbia. It was entitled the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, a gathering of 300 students right from elementary up to university. It, it included teachers, social change agents, uh, folks involved in writing curriculum. They had brought on board the uh, United Nations official Robert Mueller to kind of be our inspiration, our, our guiding light. And uh, for three days, I was completely immersed in their world. And I realized that, okay, this is research. Be able to go to document what they're saying in real time with no filters to be able to spend time uh, listening and talking with them around the water cooler, so to speak, um, to, to start to getting to know them on a per- more of a personal level. And that has been incredibly helpful for myself to be able to weed out uh, so much of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there and just the noise that's out there in the research community. Uh, it's important to be able to go and actually see what's taking shape. That does something else for you, too. It creates a sense of empathy, and you realize that these are people. Yeah. 
these are people. They are they are seeking something. They're pursuing something. Uh, yes, they are pursuing an alternative spiritual salvation or a redemption plan, but they are pursuing it. And a lot of these people, uh, their intentions, they see it as as having a sense of a noble intention behind it. Though the direction they're going is literally the road of, or, or you know, the path of death. It's it's a dead end. Uh, historically, we know it's a dead end. Biblically, we can see it's a dead end. But by spending time with these people, you realize, okay, you know, they're people, and that's important. That's really important. We tend to forget that yeah. in, in the Christian world. Yeah, well, you know, it's true. I mean, you know, like you know, me living out in California and some of my like previous work that I've done in the past, where you know, I've been in and around like Hollywood, right? And that's one of those things where it's really easy for Christians to say, all of you crazy Hollywood people over there, and you're all of the devil, and you're all this, and you're all that, and there's these stereotypes that are put up. But then you actually talk right. to a lot of these people. Some of the stereotypes are accurate. But at the same mm-hmm. time, they're also – you can tell that they're actually people, and they're thinking through a lot of these things. They've got a twisted uh, worldview, and their mindset is off. But when you actually talk to them, you're like – that guy, maybe he's a multimillionaire, maybe he's in every single movie, but at the same time, he's a guy just like you and I. He just happens to have more money. Right. Really, what difference does that really make? They're still a person, you know? And it, just being around that has really been an eye-opener for me as well. Oh, it, it is, absolutely. Because then you see them, the very fact that they are, like you and I, they are made in the image of God. We tend to forget that. They're made in the image of God, but they're, like you and I, they're fallen. The the difference between them and us is Jesus Christ. Yep, totally. And they need and they need Christ just as much as you and I need Christ. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, I, th- and I think that that's the thing to remember is that like they're our mission field; they're not our enemy. And you know, and, like when right. you're going to a lot of these different you know places, it's people that it's people that oftentimes I think Christians write off, as opposed to saying we need we need to reach them. You know, they may look right. different, they may act different, but at the same time, they got their oftentimes because of sin, what's the point of the gospel? <laughs> the gospel is we have the answer to sin. That's the whole point. Right, right. And now, uh, to be fair, I'm going primarily to do research to try to understand how the world is, is changing. But over the last few years, there's been more of a, that missional aspect that's been coming out. Um, when I've gone to United Nations and global global governance events, uh, World Federalist meetings, it's hardcore politics. I mean, it's its not exactly the kind of place where mission outreach becomes a thing, though I have had a few conversations. And that's thats the important part. You are looking for places and times when those conversations can, can come up. Uh, but I'm got, going primarily from that research perspective. At the Parliament of World Religions and at other interfaith events, well, they all want to talk about religion. That's what they're there for. Right. And so there's the, the open doors are all around you if you're willing to take advantage of that. Uh, one thing I really appreciated about Burning Man when I've been going the last three times is, is just how hungry people are to talk, to having some serious conversations about spirituality, religion. And primarily, as they find out you're a Christian, and they're, first of all, almost aghast that you're even there, like, what are you guys doing here? Uh, you can have a, a good conversation uh, and, and begin. We use a beginning point, and Dr. Peter Jones works us through very well, oneism versus twoism. And that becomes the point of reference that we often use. Is reality one, God, man, and nature, all sharing a same commonality, sharing the same essence, or is reality two? 
God being distinct, different, utterly unique from creation, and everything else. God and everything else. Yeah. Which really is the Romans 1 paradigm. Either we're worshiping the creation, the creation or we're worshiping the creator. And so that's the perspective we, we have tended to take in some of our conversations. It's been really good. And then going to pagan events. Um, because Burning Man is, I, I would, I would qualify Burning Man as being, uh, middle pea-sized pagan. Uh, if, if you want to use the idea of, of, of three levels of paganism, small p paganism is just a general view that the world around us already has. Middle p paganism would be, um, Movements and even religions that that look to either elevate the higher self, look to elevate creation in some respect. It could even include things like Eastern mysticism, whereas large P paganism is the intended religious expression of the worship of creation, and that is things like Wicca and witchcraft and Druidism and heathenry, which is, I mean, paganism the large P paganism, the religious expression of that is literally a religious nature. That's something that the pagan community is very clear about. We are a religion of nature. So I would put Burning Man right in the middle because there is no set boundaries or definitions that are given to you. Everything is happening and you meet all kinds of people. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that those conversations are just like fascinating when you're, when you're getting a lot of these people, especially, especially what's interesting too is that I've noticed around uh, you know, certain cults and certain mentalities and people with some of those mindsets when they're in those beginning stages, I feel like a lot of times those are some of the most fascinating conversations because they're, st they're, they're still impressionable kind of going either way and they're open to kind of anything and everything. Whereas when you get into the, you know, like you would say, like, let's say the third level, they're very dogmatic, very pretty hardcore, you know, things like that. Um, but you know, so when, like, when you're dealing with like Burning Man, do you, do you feel like, people are writing you off as a Christian and as a believer? Or do you feel like they're open and receptive and like, okay, that's interesting? Yes, oh, definitely the second. Uh, we've only had a handful of occasions where people have written us off. Last year we had uh, a group of uh, campers behind us that came from Denmark. When they found out we were Christians, they wanted nothing to do with us. In fact, they wouldn't even look at us for the rest of the week. They had to go by our tent every day. And they wouldn't even meet our eyes. So that was really kind of interesting. The very first year that I went with my friend uh, Bob Worley, uh, we only had one fellow who, when the name Jesus Christ came up, uh, literally just, I don't want anything to do with that, and walked away. Other times we've had people come back, and they've come back, and they want to talk, uh, and it's respectful. You know, it's it's how you approach it. I mean, you're, you're going there to, to listen to them. That's the first thing you do. You've in, you invest in their life by listening to them, by, by not talking about yourself first or what you believe first, but allowing them to express their views, their beliefs, and then bring it back to where the conversation began, which is oftentimes the name of your camp. Well, what does this mean? Right. And then you'll take it back around to that point, which was, you know, your initiating point. And, uh, and then you can go into, into what makes Christianity unique, what makes it distinct. Why, why you should consider it seriously versus the caricature and the stereotypical mockery that you see of it at Burning Man. Cause that's there too. It's there in spades. Right. Right. And, and you got to learn. And it doesn't matter where you go. And, and you know this, Jeff, you got to be able to, to, to differentiate between something that uh, you have to be able to differentiate between what is uh, offensive to you personally. How do I describe this? Hmm. I got to say it better than that. 
there's a difference between finding something personally offended, offensive and being offended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You can find things offensive and you'll find things, all kinds of things offensive. It's all around you. The mockery of Christianity, but you can't be personally offended because it's not about you. Right. Right. And that, that's a really good, that's a really good point to make, I think as well. Um, but in, in, you know, one of the, uh, the event that you just came from was a, was a flat out like pagan event, correct? That's right. Yeah. And, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of people all gathering together, all essentially surrounding with paganism in and of itself. Now, before we get to the actual event, wanted to have you actually define for people, like, what is paganism? Cause, you know, a lot of misconceptions out there. A lot of, you know, they just throw the term around and I don't think a lot of people actually understand what it is. So when you're talking about paganism, what is it that you're actually talking about? In this respect, it is the religion of worshiping nature. Nature is the focal point and primarily through the, through the worship of a goddess or other deity that reflects or personifies nature. And so you're looking at Wicca witchcraft, which are not the same. They are similar. They inter- interlock. There, is, there are differences, and people don't, don't realize that there's a lot of difference within the pagan community. You're looking at Druidism, heathenry, uh, voodoo. All of these are, at their core, a religion that personif- uh, worships and personifies nature in a spiritual framework. And and, and, and I mean, this this is a religious movement that is a reflection of the breakdown of of the Christian witness already. Uh, what I find quite disturbing when I go to these events, and I, now I've been to three three pagan conferences, I've been to a few other smaller pagan events. Um, what I find very troubling is how many people have come out of a Christian worldview and adopted paganism. They have moved away from their Baptist church or from their Pentecostal church, and they have now embraced Wicca or they've embraced uh, some other form of witchcraft. Uh, they've they've become a Druid. The list goes on. I mean, Jeff, it was no different at this event. Um, we, I, we, I was at one ritual, workshop ritual that, that happened where the, the priest of this coven uh, had even gone to Bible college, was was looking to become a minister uh, had a real interest in Christian apologetics, then had a paranormal psychic experience. Uh, he went to his pastor. He went to his professors. All of his, all, all of the Christian leaders around him said, "Ah, you know, it's not important. You know, don't worry about it. You know, don't, those aren't the kind of questions we want to talk about." And so he went looking for answers because the Christian community wasn't going to give him answers. There wasn't the answers weren't there. Yeah, we just don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so he went looking, and he went straight into the arms of of the Wiccan community because they had answers. Yeah. And I've heard stories like this repeatedly at these events. I mean, repeatedly. Last year, I was at a a, a witchcraft Wiccan pagan conference. Uh, One of the, the, the questions that popped up in the room, and it was a room of maybe 60 people or so, who here comes from another faith tradition? And by that, it was implied Christianity because around the room, hands shot up. Methodist, uh, Pentecostal, Baptist, Lutheran, you know, on and on it went. And I'm like, something, something's wrong. Yeah. Now, something's wrong. Now, now, do you, now, do you think that the primary thing is just the fact that that Christians in general, either they, they're uncomfortable and they don't want to discuss these things, or is it that people aren't educated and don't know? Or is it a combination of the two? 
Both. Oh, it's okay. definitely both. And, and and I understand. I mean, as pastors, as as church leaders, um, and I used to be a little bit harder on pastors than I am now, I guess. But at one point, I, I was like, how come you guys aren't getting this? How come you guys aren't recognizing the changes that are happening around you, taking it seriously? Because in, in many respects, as Christian researchers and, and authors, it seems that you're kind of shouting against the wind. But I, I've got to I've got to give them some slack in the sense that hey they've got church issues to deal with they've got they're they're involved in counseling the list goes on their plates are heavy they don't have time necessarily and I get it to go and explore okay what's the pagan community doing specifically or what is the transhumanist community doing they don't have time and so often often I think what what happens is somebody comes to them with uh, all of a sudden an imposing difficult situation or a question and it's easy simply to say you don't have to worry about that yeah you don't have to worry about that wrong approach because then you know the person goes looking for answers elsewhere and no it's very true you know i i was a uh i was a worship leader at a church out in arizona for a while and and being there in that in that scenario was really eye-opening to me because it was really before I was really paying attention to theology and doctrine and apologetics and things like that. It was just kind of like, we're all Christians. You know, like, what's the big deal? And so I was, you know, like mentoring some of these, some of these kids that are in the worship band and running sound and things like that. And there's one kid, you know, specifically that I, and I spoke to him after uh, a couple of years after I had, uh, was no longer working with that church. And we had, and we had lunch and now he's a full blown atheist. And I asked him, I'm like, well, what happened here? Like, how did you, how did you yeah. go from being hardcore apologetics, like reading all the right guys to flat out rejecting Christ? And it, and it literally boiled down to he approached our pastor and had questions about how do we know the Bible's true? Hmm. And the pastor said, you just have to have faith. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. And so then he kept pressing and they're like, Stop causing problems. Just, just have faith. And it's like, we should be able to have more of an answer than just, just believe it because we say so. It, like, to me, I always, I always say, if, if what we believe is true, then everything in the world should be able to support what we believe. And that should go for science, for history, for geology, for everything. It should all be able yes. to support what we believe because it is in fact true. It's not just a, Take it by faith and reject all evidence because the evidence should be pointing to what we believe. Exactly. I agree. This has been – I hate to say it, but it's true. This has been a very uh, contentious – I see this now as a contentious point where we have dropped the ball as Christians. Mm-hmm. We, at one time, the Christian community was the hub of, of intellectualism. We no longer are. Yeah. We, we've let that go. And so it has become simplistic, whereas the world isn't simple. Uh, the gospel message is a simple message, yes, but the world itself is nuanced and, and the world itself is complex. And if we don't want to engage, they will even, people look elsewhere. Yep. No, it's, it's very true. And, and, what, and one of the other things that is, has really stuck with me too, and a lot of, and this is, there was a documentary that came out and a lot of Christians say like, don't watch it. That's a bad, that's a bad documentary, all that kind of stuff. But it was Bill Maher's Religious. And I remember, I remember watching his documentary and, and he's asking Christians specific questions that in all reality, we should be able to explain. And right. they literally have no idea like how to answer these things. And you're sitting here and you're like, Okay, we get it. But Bill Maher is an atheist, very anti-God, very anti-Christian, anti-religion. 
But at the same time, these questions should be very basic. Like, how do we know that God created the earth? How do we know that the Bible is true? How do, like, certain things where it's like, these are like basic Sunday school answers and people don't understand. And I think to a certain degree, there's just a lack of training and teaching like apologetics and understanding our faith. There's a lot of self-help and make you feel good in church. And it's like, maybe we need to kind of go back to the whole apologetic side of things. Yes. The other thing that, that I, I hear uh, within the pagan community from former, uh, former church attenders, former, former, they would have confessed to Christians is that there is an experiential aspect in the pagan world that you can't get anywhere else. Specifically, you can't find that within Christianity. And, and how do you then as a Christian argue when you hear somebody say, well, I have a much more transformative experience when I'm engaged in Wicca or when I'm engaged in Druidism and they're right. In fact, this is one of the things that, that struck me, uh, uh, listening to some of the academics within the Wiccan community talk about how we are an experiential movement, and this is something that Christians can't compete with. And, and what hit me was, you're right, we can't. We're not supposed to. That's that's actually not what we're about. Whether you have experiences or not, do not determine what is true. And so we are not engaging at that level because we don't need to engage at that level. And I think it's important that as Christians, we're able to say, hold on. Experiences, they have, you know, there's, there's an important part of the, of, of, of our, of our human experience, an important part of the human life, but they don't dictate what is true. Right. What is true stands on its own. And we're not here competing at the level of experience. And that, I think, is an, a, a problem within the Christian world where we use our experiences now to justify our positions that we hold, where those all of a sudden become the litmus test for what is true, is our experiences. Well, if all of a sudden your experiences fall short or they aren't as transformative as, let's say, some other experience, even the Burning Man experience, uh, how, how now do you deal with that? That's one of the things that has come up when I've been at these pagan events, and again, it happened here at, at Pantheacon, where I was in San Jose last week, uh, some of the discussion about how this is an experiential, experience-based religious movement. We feel it. We feel the energy. We feel the interaction with spirits. We have now this complex relationship that's unfolding in real time and we're part of it and it's deep and it's connected and the Christians don't have that it's more of a bland you sit in the pew you don't have those experiences and in my mind I'm going hold on it's not about the experience it's about what is true and I think one of the reasons that that I think even Jesus when he talks about how uh, an adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. One of the problems is when we're seeking after signs and wonders, and that becomes our litmus test, is that takes away from the fact that what we're supposed to do is trust God, period. Yep. Regardless of what we experience. Yep. Regardless if it's good or whether it's crap. Do you trust God? Period. Yeah, you know that. I mean, that, that's even reminding me of uh, of Jesus after uh, after he rose from the dead, and he and he was talking about how you know those who ha- who have faith without seeing are essentially more blessed 
than those who who have to be proven, you know, right right there as well with with his presence and that sort of thing. And that that's an interesting thing as well with the whole experience. But also at the same time, I wonder if this whole search for experience is what's really been leading to the explosion of the extreme, like charismatic side of things, but then also a lot of the contemplative prayer and a lot of these mm-hmm. kinds of things where it's like we it's like everybody's trying to incorporate these experiential uh paganistic rituals and practices and trying to absorb it into Christianity as a way to keep people Christian let's say but right. but at the same time it's still they're pursuing the experience not necessarily the truth right right and again i don't I, you know i'm not saying we don't have experiences we right. can we do uh, but we have to be very careful. We have to be very discerning about where those experiences come from. Some of those experiences, even within the pagan world, flat out are neurochemical experiences. It's endorphins. Yeah. It's adrenaline. And, and, and we tend sometimes within our religious communities, whether it's the pagans or even you put it in our own lap in the Christian community, where we'll all of a sudden have uh, a, a phenomenal uh, encounter in worship or whatever it is, and and you know, this is, you know we have neurochemicals cooking off, and we're all of a sudden we're attributing that to the Holy Spirit, and we have to be really careful. We have to be discerning. Again, I'm not discounting experience. I'm not saying we don't have experience. We just have to be discerning right. and recognize that that your experiences are not the litmus test for for truth. Yeah, definitely. Now, now with this uh, latest uh, you know gathering or convention that you went to, which was dealing you know a lot within the pagan world and that sort of thing, what what was kind of like the focus of it in general? Was it just overall paganism in general? Or was there like a specific like focus to it? Oh, good question. We have to back that up just sure. a little bit. This is the twenty sixth and the last. Pantheacon. Now, Pantheacon is the largest indoor convention of witches and druids and heathens in the world. Okay? It's been going on, like I said, 26 years. This was the last one, which is one of the reasons I wanted to go. It's not the last one because the pagan community is, you know, it's in decline. No, it's not. Actually, it's growing. And that's part of the problem. As organizers behind the event, they are being, you know, they're being burnt out. This is a huge task to hold an event of 2,500 to 2,800 pagans. Um, and so th- there, there's there's a, a weight to it. Um the theme, that being said, being the last Pantheon, the theme really was, it's the last Pantheon. Now what? Mm-hmm. Now where do we go with it? And what was interesting was behind that was this, the rumblings of attention within the pagan community. And this is also one of the reasons, one of the reasons why this was the last Pantheacon was because there is a tension within the pagan community. The umbrella, as one person described it, the pagan umbrella has become so broad that the edges are all tearing out because now everybody is coming under the pagan umbrella and they all have their politically correct, uh, they all have their, their, their woke, their, their, you know, whatever their, their fad and fetish is, and they're all demanding that they have equal space and equal time. And there's a tension. There's a real bona fide tension. And you don't get this until you start interacting with them on a one-on-one level and going to their events. There's a tension. So this year, the opening ritual of Pantheacon, one of the things that they were very, very clear about is we have to have in our opening ritual um, an invocation 
to the non-binary deities so that the trans community can feel like they're welcomed because in years gone by, the trans community has felt like they have been sidestepped or trampled upon by others in the pagan community. And they're going, hold on, hold on, what about us? And now, if, keep in mind, this event was done in the Doubletree Hotel in San Jose. It's a public it's a public venue. I mean, there's patrons, other patrons, who are not part of the pagan community that are renting hotel rooms. Um, and so they're ha- they have to interact all weekend long with hundreds and hundreds, probably almost 2,000 pagans in various different guises and dresses. And, and I mean, it's very, very colorful. Um, there are some of the most bizarre dresses and the most bizarre get-ups imaginable as they're trying to prove their point or, or demonstrate their particular subculture or subgenre within the pagan community. And so there was this real tension between how now do we, as a pagan community, wrap our arms around what we have in the past kind of marginalized. And so they had a lot of workshops on non-binary spirituality, on transgendered Wiccans, transgendered pagans. This time they had a workshop. It was a, 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 a pardon me, a peoples of color, pardon me, pagans of color caucus, because the the people who are of of color, be it either blacks or Asians or Hispanic or indigenous, felt that they had been marginalized over the years by the white, more or less Anglo-Saxon, European pagan, um, because really the, the, the rise of neo-paganism is built upon or predicated upon a lot of it on European myth, European religious practices. Um, and so they feel that they have been marginalized. And so you have all of this politically correct tension. One of the things that, that, that came through with this tension was an announcement was made that all of the bathrooms in some of the main areas on the main floor where the conference was being held, again, keep in mind, patrons who are not pagan are there too. All the bathrooms had had non-gender signs placed on top of them. You couldn't tell which was the boys or which was the girls. And they were all gender-neutral bathrooms. And I'm like, oh, guys, okay, you're doing this to appease all the politically correct tension that you've got going on. And it's palpable. I mean, there's some some pretty heavy stuff going on in the pagan community as they're wrestling with with this. And I just, I, you know, I felt bad because I'm like, all right, if, if mom and dad have brought their kids for the weekend to go and spend some time in the pool at the Doubletree in San Jose, just regular mom and pa, and, and their kids are seeing this stuff because it's very open. I mean, they're, they're flaunting it, very much flaunting it. What are they thinking? Like, I mean, come on, aren't you now you know, imposing your so-called inclusive values and forcing that upon everybody else who's there? Yeah, that's, that's, it's, an, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting point, too, because, you know, and, and the thing is, the thing that always fascinates me about a lot of these um, like subgenres and, uh, you know, diff- different groups like this is – they they go so hardcore um inclusion but then also mm-hmm. so far and so hardcore anti mainstream it's it's this weird like uh tension going on between we want to we want to be inclusive but we're going to reject everything that's everything that's mainstream 
and it, it's just, know. it doesn't make logical sense, but for whatever reason, that's, that's how they think. And so, you know, just even having a conversation with somebody, it's just kind of like, how, do, how do you broach that and really deal with that root issue of claiming to be inclusive and then clearly not being inclusive? Mm-hmm. I know. And, and there's a lot of places even within like, like this is the, our agenda book for the, for the week, uh, for the weekend. It was a four day event. There's a number of places in here where they're, they're very clear. We want to be inclusive. Uh, and then there's a few places, like even for the, the people of color caucus, it was, they, they make the statement that, um, you have to self-identify as a, as a person of color to actually go into the caucus. A, a few places where all of a sudden you're realizing your inclusivity is kind of banging up against a, a hard wall. And yeah, that's part of the tension that, that this particular community has a hard time navigating and it's it's been it's been brewing for a long time and and this event this event specifically kind of was the 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 sharp edge of the spear as all of a sudden it was dividing asunder the pagan their own pagan community yeah you know and, and what's interesting too about that is i think a lot of times us as believers we think that we're the only ones that are dealing with this PC culture because we're really seeing it infiltrating like in, in, within the Southern Baptist Convention, within the Gospel Coalition, right. the PCA, and, and we're struggling with this within our own little group of people. And then the pagan community of all people are also struggling with the exact same things that we're struggling with. And I feel like that's fascinating that this PC culture has been infiltrating not just Christianity, not just politics, but every way of life and that's evidenced by what you experience at the that pagan convention right and what, what's fascinating with it is in many respects the pagan community is progressive left very progressive left it is pc culture but pc culture itself even even when it's being expressed by that very culture also ends up tearing each other to pieces too i mean in the name of inclusion all of a sudden, everything is acceptable, but it's still not acceptable. And now, what do you? How do you deal with this? How do you deal with this, this conflict? And yes, it there there it, it's there. It's definitely there. And so they're wrestling with this too, uh, which is fascinating to me. That was really fascinating. Uh, I, I overheard a few conversations about how uh, one particular coven was was having to deal with racism in their coven, like some serious racial issues. And I thought for a minute that they were talking actually about the event I was attending here with them, mm-hmm. Pantheacon. Like, are you talking about some of the underlying problems that happened last year? Because I know what some of those problems were. And like, no, 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 this is actually about our coven. Like, oh, okay, so it's deeper than just what I'm seeing at this event. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Like, wow. You know, so... Even in a progressive left pagan culture, there are times when you can't even be – where, where there's no end to being progressive left. And if you're not progressive left enough, well, all of a sudden, wow, you're, you know, you're, you're intolerant. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, but, <laughs> but by, the, by the way, we just, we just had somebody comment on Facebook and they go, this is fantastic. Can this be two hours? <laughs> 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 so – uh, well, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like the, again, part of, part of the, it, part of even just like that question itself is like, this is a whole other world that I think to a certain degree, it, what's, again, what's fascinating to me is I'm listening to you explain what's going on is on one hand, it's so anti-Christian. It's so like foreign to a lot of what we're dealing with. But then at the same time, it's almost relatable because they're struggling with the same things that we're seeing the church struggle with. 
And so it's like, to a certain degree, there's a certain empathy, but clearly they have the wrong answer. You know, we, we both are address, we're both seeing the problem, but right. the, the church should have the right answer. They clearly don't. And it's seeing how they're both sides are actually responding to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in their response is more inclusion, even yeah. more. Which, which heightens the tension even further. It may be a band-aid for a short time, and it is a band-aid, because they're all singing kumbaya together, their final rituals kind of thing. It is a band-aid of sorts, but, but you have to, you have to, you have to hone in even more on that inclusivity to the point where all of a sudden it gets really awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, when, but when you're dealing with, uh, like paganism and things like that, I feel like a lot of times Christians will look at it, and they'll say it's the worship of Satan. It's like Satanism, mm. you know. And, and right. I and I hear that a lot in in relation to that. So, but then you're saying it's more the worship of nature and things like that. So, how how do those two things play in together, or are they even correlated at all? Great question. Fantastic question. Uh, biblically, of course, what we are talking about obviously has a satanic backing behind it from a, from a biblical theological point of view. The pagan community, though, doesn't accept our theology. They don't accept the concept of that Satan is behind what they're doing. Um, that said, last year I attended a, a pagan gathering in Minneapolis. Uh, it, it's called Paganicon. And uh, it's the largest indoor gathering of pagans in the Midwest. And last year they specifically invited Satanists and Luciferians to be a part of the pagan community, recognizing that they represent the left-hand path, the darker path, but that realistically it's all the same path. It's the same coin, so to speak. Uh, I went to a workshop by a, a Satanist uh, at, at uh, a Paganicon, and uh, it, it was interesting because you're there listening to the conversations, and before the Satanist gave her lectures or gave her, her presentation – she was talking to some of the some of the other other Wiccans that were in the room, and uh, in a, in a way they're almost apologizing to each other, and that came out too in her talk in her lecture, uh, as other pagans were were saying, hey, you know, we actually we've done you as a service as Satanists because we've always viewed you as being apart from us, but realistically, uh, you are a part of us too, but it, it's just a different expression. And so there was this interesting combination now at that event between pagans from this category and Satanists and Luciferians from that category coming together. Um, I asked the question, and, and others did too, that were you know similar kind of questions. What's the difference between Satanism and Luciferianism? What's the difference between Satanism and paganism? Well, Satanism and Luciferianism was explained this way. Luciferianism is the intellectual pursuit of gnosis through the concept of Satan. It is an intellectualized process, whereas Satanism, and there's different, I didn't realize, there's different categories of Satanism. There's spiritual Satanism. There's atheist Satanists. Uh, there's a whole pile of categories. I didn't, I'm like, I thought Satanists were Satanists, but they're not. Yeah. Uh, and Satanists are more the carnal, worshipful aspect of Satanism. So one is intellectual, one is more carnal, and there's overlap between the two. Whereas pagans and paganism, Wicca, 
uh, the world of witchcraft, Druidism, is not about worshipping Satan. They don't even bring Satan into the equation. It's about worshipping very specific deities, very specific gods and goddesses, usually represented in the mythologies of old. It could be uh, Hecate, it could be uh, Diana. It could be uh, any one of the Greek pantheon or, or the Nordic deities, Thor or Odin. The list goes on. And so they are worshipping very specific gods and goddesses, spiritual entities that are representations of nature. Because all of those mythological deities were all, in some respect, an extension of natural experiences and natural processes. So certain gods and goddesses would have uh, attributes like sexuality and fertility. Others would have agriculture. Others would be uh, victors in war, um, you know, Nike and Athena. And so the pagan world, not the Satan pagan world, but the pagan world views their lineage as coming from that background, that understanding. Right now, now, so so when they're, when they're worshiping these different like deities and that sort of thing, are they worshiping them in the same way that let's say we would worship God in the sense of we believe that He's a real you know being, and so we're we're worshiping and we're talking to a real being, or is it more something that that they represent, like you were talking about, like agriculture, like are, they, are is it is it like a a persona of a of a perception of something. Both depends who you talk to, yeah. and then that's one of the things that makes paganism kind of uh, you know, interesting in the in the sense that they don't have a list of of creeds or dogmas or or whatever. There's not a there's there's how do you say this? It's not a theologically solid or sound position because everyone comes at it interpreting it in their own way. And that's you're told that over and over again. It really doesn't matter if the gods and goddesses are real gods and goddesses, as long as what you're doing works for you, yeah. as long as the ritual works for you. For others, when you talk to them, yes, those gods and goddesses are very real. And I mean very, very real. One of the workshops I went to was on spirit marriages, um, with the idea of cultivating a bonded contractual relationship with a spiritual being and how very specific gods and goddesses had approached these pagans and said, we would like to enter into a marriage contract with you. And then what that all looked like, how that was all arranged. And for those pagans, yes, they are entering into a, a profound, deep contract, literally a marriage, a spiritual marriage. And even the discussions were, now what do we do with our spouse? like our human spouse, and how uh, one of the pagans was talking about how they would have to, they had to actually sit around the table because he was married to a certain goddess, and she was married to a goddess, another god as well, and they had other deities that wandered in on this polyamorous human spiritual relationship, and then they had to sit down and work through literally a um, an agenda, a timeline, um, sitting down with a calendar. Who gets to be with who? For the month, right? I'm like this is just wow. But yeah. they took it very, very serious because they are having some type of a, a, of an experience with a spiritual entity, and they themselves called it being possessed. They understood it was voluntary possession. Yeah. So, so, so then, as as believers, how how are we supposed to like respond to somebody something like that? Because if we come in, if we come into in an, an interaction with somebody, I mean. 
that is so foreign to anything that we're familiar with. It's like how are yep. we supposed how are we supposed to respond? Like are we supposed to engage in this is a real thing, this is in your mind? Like how how do we how do we deal with something like that? You know, I don't I don't even think we I don't even think we go down those roads. I think we respond by having to look at the question back to Dr. Peter Jones' methodology is is reality one or is it two? Yeah. We have to look at it. At, 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 I mean, it sounds so basic, but it is really the framework, the bottom line regarding the Judeo-Christian worldview. Is it true or is your worldview true? Is reality one or is reality two? I'll give you an example. When I was at Burning Man the first year, um, my friend Bob had to leave for a, a day or so. Uh, and I was at, the, the, at my camp by myself, and this young Russian artist came by. And he looked at the, uh, at the sign, Camp of the Unknown God, and he blurted out, who is this unknown God? Which was really cool. So we're like, hey, get out of the shade. Here's some Gatorade. Here's some water. Here's some food. And we talked. And, and I, I said, hey, I want to know about who you are. Tell me about who he, you know, about, about you. And so he went off about he's an esoteric philosopher. He's involved as an artist to try to understand his spiritual worldview through his art forms. And I go, oh, oh, you're a oneist. And he's like, I'm not really sure where you're going with this. I said, well, the idea that man, nature, and God ultimately all share the same essence. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. I'm a, if that's what you mean, it's oneness. His worldview is oneness. I use the word oneist or whatever it was to, to, to some extent. But we, he goes, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I, everything's all one. So I said, are you telling me that as an artist, you have the same value as your artwork? And he goes, hmm, no, of course not. I, I've, I have a higher value than my artwork. Um, are you telling me that God, the ultimate artist, the one who created the mountains that surround us, this incredible desert, this amazing sky above us, you're telling me that the ultimate artist is the same as his artwork? And all of a sudden he got the smile across his face and he goes, I see where you're going. Yeah. And that opened up, that opened up the conversation. Yeah. Well, see, and, so, and that's that's the interesting thing is like when you have these conversations, it's like you're walking through the process with them and asking them questions, not just saying right. you're wrong and here's the answer. Right. So when it comes to something like inter interacting with somebody who has a story, as for many Christians, it would sound just completely bizarre. For me, it doesn't sound bizarre because I've interacted with these people enough. It doesn't sound bizarre. They're serious. I mean, they are truly, truly serious. And by the way, the, the lady giving the presentation came from a Pentecostal background. She accepted this spiritual marriage completely. This was real. And so it sounds nutty for us as Christians, but for them, it's absolutely real. And I think it is real. There is something going on. There's no doubt. There's some possession that is going on. But we don't start by breaking that down. Don't even go there. Find a find a more basic and more important beginning point. Yeah. Now, now we had we had uh, somebody on Facebook. Uh, Linda asked the question about these spiritual marriages, and they said, "Is this like an incubus? Uh, is it succubus issue with these marriages?" No, uh, it, it's not like that per se, but it's more of um, uh, of, of a of a contract based possession. 
you can have my body, be in my body. You will experience my experience, my experiences. Uh, it, it will be consummated through a sexual experience as well, where the, where the being will feel your sexual energies. Um, and, and it's more that of a voluntary, literally a contract. They are, as is explained, they're even having a contract base laid out where the boundaries are set. It sounds wild, and it was. I'm like, you are literally talking about arranging, arranging and organizing. It's not just simply uh, willy-nilly. You are organizing a possession. Yeah. And the being came to you, asking you. One of the big uh, talking points was what happens when multiple beings come uh, wanting your hand in marriage, and those beings don't get along with each other. Hi, yeah, yeah, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> for myself, I mean, you're the, I have to be there with a straight face. Not that I would even crack a smile at this because this is a really serious subject. But there are times I'm hearing stuff where I'm going, oh, my word, really? This is what you're thinking? Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, this is serious. These people are engaging in some real serious stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that that's really where as believers, we were kind of talking about this earlier as well, is – where do where does truth lie, and where, and and, right. and I think that that's going to be the most important thing that I think that we need to understand as believers is the tr- truth is truth no matter what our experience is because and I think a good example of this would be like if you go to a theme park right and you go on you go on a ride your experience is that this ride took you to outer space, but did you really go to outer space or was it was that just your experience? You know, and I think that that's something that we need to remember is that you can have these experiences and even the experience like what you're talking about with these spiritual beings, they're real experiences, but that doesn't make them right. You know, and and, and I think that that's something that we need to remember is that it's not just all all about like, like, you know, what you experience or this, you know, if, if you experience a spiritual being, they could come to you and approach you. And try to, you know, come up with some sort of relationship or whatever it is. That's, that may be really happening, but that doesn't mean that's something you want to do. <laughs> I know. No kidding. Yeah. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting too is, is cause I've spent enough time in this community just interacting with them is, is how that t- sometimes ends up becoming a very, uh, how do I say this? It becomes an experience of, of bondage. Yeah, where now they're they're held, they're held in a contract, in a bondage relationship with those entities. Breaking free is not always easy, and doesn't always happen. That 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 is one of the questions that came up at a workshop I was at um, on on a, a very specific ritual, very specific rite, uh, which invokes. Uh, it's called the drawing down the moon, which is a point in time in a in a, in a ritual where you are possessed. You are involved in a trance possession. And what happens when you can't shake the, that deity out of the person who's now being possessed in the ritual? Uh, one of the other workshops I went to, and that wasn't at this one, it was at a different conference, was uh, on spiritual discernment. Where do we go? How do we find spiritual discernment in this world of multiple entities making multiple demands, all kinds of, 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 of different messages coming our way? And what was disturbing, and I've got the paper, the, the handout sheet, what was disturbing at the end of the paper was, was the 1-800 number, hotline number for mental health, and another 1-800 hotline number for suicide prevention. 
Yeah. Because that's where you end up having to go. If, if things just don't work out, where do you go? And all of a sudden, you are literally in a form of bondage, real, real bondage. Because I believe as a Christian that these are real entities mm-hmm. and they don't have your best interests at heart. Right, right. No, that's, that's very true. And I, and I think something else to, that I think we need to like, you know, I want to kind of take a look at as well is a lot of these ideas and these practices and things like that are, you know, obviously in a very watered down version are in our culture and they're in entertainment and we see it very influential and in, at what point is that like a very strategic thing or is it just like an outpouring that that's very prevalent in like, let's say like in Hollywood. And so thus it's going into the film and the movies and that sort of thing. Or is it more of an intentional, like we're trying to influence people to go down that path? I I think it's both. I think it's both. Uh, And I kind of bring this out in my book, game of gods a little bit. Uh, the, The terminology is a culture. Oh, culture. Uh, Christopher Partridge, who's a, a professor of religion, brought out that 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 term. And O culture is where the culture becomes so enamored in what would be considered an occult worldview that 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 will permeate into the generalized culture. Movies with with themes that will resonate with with the paranormal or with witchcraft. Uh, there's definitely the Hollywood version of it. I mean, everybody goes right away to Harry Potter, and, and in the workshop I, the, that I attended on the mainstreaming of paganism, Harry Potter came out. Um, what was interesting with with the movie, the movies in the book Harry Potter, one particular coven set up a school of wizardry, an online school of wizardry, to try to capture that attention. And it has classes for for young people, and you can pay a fee and take all these different courses. But in in the conversation that took place. It was interesting because these are the people who set that course up, who set up the School of Wizardry. They said, hey, you know, we, we expected like to be flooded by young people looking for uh, the Harry Potter experience, and we would use that as the gateway. And while they were coming, it was mostly adults. It was more adults coming than children. I'm like, that? That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, where, you know, what's the dynamic behind that? But I think it's part and parcel with the very fact that we have seen the cultural change from the late 1960s till now. And that cultural change comes in this, in, in, in this way. It began realistically, and, and there's a tipping point that, had, that occurred on April the 22nd, 1970. That was the very first environmental teaching, what we now know as the first Earth Day. And that was extremely pagan in the sense that uh, they, they came out with uh, a handbook called the Environmental Handbook. I've got a copy sitting here on my shelf not far away. Um, the very first chapter in the book decries Christianity and tears down Christianity and says, look, we're having a worsening ecological crisis because we have this Judeo-Christian worldview. And I think it's on by, by page 330 or 334, something like that in the handbook. You literally have a list of religions that should be replacing Christianity because they have a better ecologic worldview, including things like shamanism, witchcraft, list goes on. April the 22nd, 1970 was a tipping point when we began as a culture to move away from the idea that we were worshipping the creator and now we have our allegiance and our loyalty to the creation. And there is a definite, discernible, you can document it, um, as we in the West bowed our knees to nature 
At the same time, we saw a sexual revolution taking place. We see a social revolution taking place. We literally are, are walking in a Romans 1 paradigm. And for me then, it's no surprise that there is a rise in this movement. It also comes in part because of what was taking place in the 1960s. The 1960s were pivotal. It really was that watershed moment when both postmodernism was birthed and at the same time its replacement was taking shape at the exact same moment, which is this concept of reenchantment. We now find our purpose and our wonder in the natural world, in creation itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, th- and I think that, like, the interesting thing is, is, like, looking at, like, celebrity culture today, I mean, we see that, like, exemplified, like, constantly. And I know that, like, one of the things that, like, a lot of people, you know, always point to, and sometimes, you know, it can come across as, like, conspiratorial and things like that, but it's, like, you look at, like, award shows, and then they, it, it's, like, clearly pagan, if not satanic, the kind of stuff you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And then you're, and then you're, and then the question then becomes, is it that, is it that they're just embracing that kind of like thinking or they're actually doing that practice? And that that's where it starts to get – that kind of divides I think Christians and believers is it's like, oh, they're just doing performance art or no, they're actually into that kind of stuff. And that that's the interesting conundrum I think we have as believers watching this happen before our eyes. Right, right. And I think that's where it's important to, to try to understand what is the worldview of the, of the people who are engaging with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, so then – I think I think as we as we kind of come back full circle to a certain degree and we're looking at okay so if we're engaging with the world around us and we're looking at we're looking at it through the prism of the gospel we're looking at it through the prism of like evangelism and so we as believers we're supposed to be going out into the world preaching the gospel essentially and we like we need to be lights shining in darkness not just lights in our own little churches and set completely separate so like how right. how do you recommend like the everyday normal person that maybe they're like I'm not ready to go to Burning Man but I still want to go out and be a light shining in dark like what what are we supposed to do as the everyday normal Christian Oh great question and and you know something I wouldn't I'll I'll, I'll couch it this way first I wouldn't recommend that everybody goes to Burning Man you can't you just can't physically we can't number 1 I I think it'd be wonderful we had 10,000 dedicated Christians who went to Burning Man they would probably change the face of it in many respects but that's not going to happen nor would i recommend people go in into some of these settings they have to understand why they're going um but but i think to the heart of of your question i think for the average person we have to take uh we have we have to recognize that we are ambassadors for christ this is key this is key what does it mean to be an ambassador we understand the the comparative language the Apostle Paul uses when he talks about running the Christian race. We're running the race, or we're trying to attain the prize, or we, we, he, we're a soldier for Christ. We get that kind of metaphorical language. Or I'm, I'm a laborer for Christ. He uses the, 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 the concept of being a farm laborer. These are metaphors and, and, and word pictures that Paul uses. But then he makes an interesting, makes an interesting statement in, in one of his other writings that that you are, are an ambassador. Now, he didn't say you're like an ambassador. He says you are an ambassador. Okay? What does an ambassador do? Do you know? Have you spent time rubbing shoulders with ambassadors? I ask this question uh, when I when I do talks on some of these on some of these topics. How many in the room has spent time in the diplomatic community? Normally, no hands go up. On occasion, a hand goes up. Almost, it's almost never. And so I'm like, all right, how do you know what an ambassador does? 
You get it. How do you get this? Jeff, a number of years ago, I was at a Chicago Council on Foreign Relations meeting where the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia was giving us a presentation on what it means to be an ambassador. He was not he was not a Christian, as far as I know. He was describing his task and how foreign it was to him. He was a, an attorney by, by, by profession, but had been chosen to be the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia. And so he broke down what it means to be an ambassador. I walked away from there, and it took a long time to kind of process it. But this is what, what I walked away from, uh, and I'm going to put it in Christianese because – that's the language you use, right? Yeah. So as Christians, here's the breakdown, the Christianese version of it. An ambassador, first of all, you are the legal, you are the lawful and legal authoritative representation of your king, period. I can't think of anything higher than that. I can't think of a calling greater than that. You are literally the legal and lawful representation of Jesus Christ, Wow. Everyone who's a believer is the, the, that holds that authority, that authority in that you are literally the legal and lawful representative of the King of Kings. So that's what an ambassador is. He is the legal and lawful representation of his government. Second, an ambassador has to understand the culture that he's going into. And this came through by, by what the ambassador from Saudi Arabia was telling us. Um, he has to study that culture. He has to know the culture, not that he becomes the culture. He is in that world, but not of that world. In fact, he recognized he's set apart from that world. He is different. He is distinct. He's unique in that world. But he has to know that world well enough that he can present the king's message to that culture in a way that they'll understand it. And he goes to where they are. Uh, he also recognizes that he is not there presenting his own agenda. Uh, he's no longer there to present his own perspective. He is there to, to, to represent the king's perspective, give the king's message. And he will subsume his own interests to make sure that he is dedicated to the interests of the king. These are all things that I broke down from listening. I could break down from listening to this this diplomat give his presentation of what it means to be an ambassador. Boy, does this sound like something relevant for our time today? Yeah. yeah. We're not hide, to hide our head in the sand. Uh, we're not to build walls around ourselves. We are to be ambassadors. We are ambassadors. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Nope, not at all. Ambassadors often are placed in very hostile, very tense, very conflicting situations, and they are. Um, but that's what an ambassador does. You are the legal, lawful representative of your king in the culture you find yourself in right now, right now. So for you, where you are in California, for me, where I am, for wherever the people are who are listening, wherever you are, right here, right now, you literally are that legal and lawful representative of Jesus Christ. It could be just your own family. It could be to your neighbor. It could be the next time you go to a bookstore and see somebody reading a book um, on, on paganism or the New Age and, and do what my friend Dr. Adair, who's a, a fellow from Indiana, he's passed away now, but he would go to use bookstores and he'd walk up to people who are reading in the New Age section and he would just very casually say, hey, so do you believe what you're reading? And he'd use that as a point to open up a conversation. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's how he found me. 
I was doing research looking for some books on the New Age, and he walks up and he's like, he thought I was a New Ager. It's like, um, do you believe what you're reading? I look at him, no. Oh, well, then why are you reading this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had a great conversation. We became good friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, just practical small things, but the understanding where our position is, and that means every single believer yeah. is an ambassador. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important, too, to remember, and I make this point, you know, quite often as well, is that, you know, with the Great Commission, it does say we're supposed to go, not in, in – and I, and I think that one of the things as well that I think we get wrong in the American church is that evangelism is now inviting your friend to church. Right. And it's it's bringing the world into the Christian world as opposed to we're supposed to be coming into the church and then being sent out into the secular world to preach the gospel. And I think that that's an important point that's missed a lot of times is we're supposed to be going, not telling them to come to us. Right. I think the purpose of the church, and there's many purposes of the church, but I think one of the primary purposes is to equip the saints, to equip the body of believers. It's for worship, yes. It's for the the the, the corporate uh, uh, worship together, being together, but it's more than that. It's to equip the body so that we go out. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And now, now, if people want to be following you and you know, be reading your research and keeping up on what you're doing and the and the crazy places you're visiting and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> how, how 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 can they do that? Probably the best way is through Facebook, um, Facebook and Twitter. You can find me on both on on both platforms. Uh, you can go to my website gameofgods.ca because I'm from Canada. It's .ca, so check it out gameofgods.ca, and you can read excerpts of my book and my bibliography is there. A bunch of other stuff is there too. Uh, well, I would just encourage people. Yeah, definitely check out the book too. Game of Gods is is a really comprehensive resource extensively documented. I, I make sure of that. I have 1,800 footnotes in the book of pointing you to all kinds of resources, all kinds of material that will... I mean, I'm making the argument also just even through the documentation that what we're talking about is real. Right. It's legitimate. And let's pull our heads out of the sand because as we keep our heads in the sand, well, number one, we can't breathe. Number two, we don't know what's even around us, the good, the bad, or the ugly. And third... Something's exposed, our rear end's exposed, and it's getting kicked. Mm -hmm. Pull your heads out of the sand, look around, quit reacting, and start responding. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, everybody, I highly encourage you, you know, you know, keep up on what Carl's doing, you know, read his research, get his book, that sort of thing. I'm going to be reading his book this year. It's on my list for, for 2020. Um, and then for, for everybody as well, uh, remember that, uh, like all, all of these shows are going to be on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, the videos will be available for about a week and then they're going to roll into our membership program over at Gatekeepers. So, uh, you guys can head over to gatekeepersonline.com for more information on that. But Carl, thanks so much for, for joining me and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's fascinating to have these, these talks on these topics that a lot of Christians don't actually dive into. So it's just, it's just fascinating to me to really get into. Well, thank you, Jeff. I mean, we've been trying, like I said, right in the very beginning of the show to do this. So this is this is good. The timing was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting me on your program. Of course. Thank you. And then for everybody as well, as everybody else out there as well, uh, I believe I'm going to be back on Thursday. Another uh, live episode of Conversations with Jeff. Going to be having on Pastor Greg Locke, who who just spoke at our conference over the over the weekend as well. Uh, but going to be having him on Thursday. So make sure you tune in for that. And we'll see you guys on Thursday. Thank you.
This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.